Hey everybody, welcome back to That Trippy Show. Today we have a great guest recommended to us by my good friend, Bern Galvin. Catherine Stewart, author and reporter. She appears regularly in the New York Times, the New Republic, and NBC News. And she's written multiple books on the Christian right in America. Her newest book, The Power Worshippers, came out last year, highly recommended. We're here to talk about one of the key factors in just about every election, but especially as we look to 2022, Christian nationalism. Catherine, thanks for being with us. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Well, you're yeah, actually, uh, we've had two or three guests recently, Stuart Stevens and then um, James Fletcher, who uh, is director of a, a film, The Accidental President. Um, and both of them sort of explained um, how we all lack the imagination to see Trump happening in 2016, and and then still kind of lack the imagination about how far he would go and how far this is still likely to go. Um, and Nick O'Malley came on uh, a few episodes ago and talked about how journalism and just sort of the fragmentation of of coverage out there is just sort of further making things tough uh, to understand and seeing people go into their own niches. Uh, and then uh, I read, uh, and Alex read it after uh, Bern clued us in, of uh, some of your pieces uh, about how, you know, obviously Christian nationalism, the movement, uh, had a lot to do with what a lot of us didn't see uh, coming. And and how it's 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 still here. The, the scarier part was how it's still here. And and how did Trump appeal to them? How did what's the connection between him? This guy doesn't seem you know I, I think he's seems to be not out of that value structure out of their their value structure, but somehow was able to energize them in the way in the way he was able to do. Yeah, I think your guests are absolutely right. That sort of failure to imagine uh, is correct. It's it's not that we failed to imagine that Trump could win. It's that we really failed to understand how Christian nationalists could like Trump and how he could appeal to their authoritarian tendencies. Um, I think we failed to understand what Christian nationalism really is. Um, there's a tendency to view it as a culture war or as a social movement. I think a lot of us took for granted that the movement is motivated by some moral or religious concerns. So a lot of observers tended to see their support for Trump as a kind of compromise or as something purely transactional, uh, like he promised to uh, appoint pro-life judges and the like. But uh, observers really failed to grasp that this is a nationalist movement, uh, meaning that it's driven fundamentally by a desire to consolidate a national identity uh, tied to explicit religious and cultural um, and implicitly racial identities and to defend it against and sometimes explicit racial identities and to defend it against some perceived extreme threat, which in their case is pluralism, secularism, uh, the idea of equality. So, you know, Trump, uh, far from representing a, a compromise candidate, actually embodied many of this movement's aspirations. So, I mean, in your Times piece right after the election, you you, you pointed this out that you know we have racial, uh, urban, rural divides, 
um, that they, that often get the most spotlight, but that the religious the religion divide is is really important. And and I didn't I'd like you to get into a little bit more about sort of the, the you know what's the definition of of this nationalism you're talking about? I mean, is it that they, a Christian nation? I mean, what is it that that that, that drives it? Well, Christian nationalism is the idea um, that America uh, is tied to uh, religious and uh, cultural identities. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's a political movement. Uh, it consists of a variety of both, you know, for-profit, non-profit uh, groups, legal advocacy groups. Um, there's like a kind of machinery of the movement, uh, legislative initiatives, right-wing policy groups, um, data organizations, uh, kind of a, a, a messaging sphere, all acting sort of in concert, uh, certainly in election cycles. You know, it's um, it makes use of religion, but it's not just trying to achieve religious, social, or cultural aims. It's really trying to achieve political power. And I think that there's a kind of many aspects of the movement that are uh, unappreciated. It's sort of often framed as a religious movement or a cultural movement, but really it's, you know, acting in concert uh, in election cycles to achieve political power. You know, it says that the United States is founded on the Bible and our country can only succeed if it stays true to this foundation. Um, and as such, it's really a device for mobilizing and often manipulating large segments of the population and for concentrating power in the hands of a new elite. Yeah, Catherine, I, I... One of the things I think you just mentioned is kind of the exercise of power. The view from the cheap seats is often that it's kind of this kind of uncoordinated group of people who kind of have these motivations. But from reading a lot of what you said, it is actually very coordinated. Can you talk a little bit more tactically about that? Sure. I mean, the strength of the movement is really in its dense organizational infrastructure. I really describe that at length. In my book, I spent over a decade going to right-wing policy meetings and gatherings and strategy meetings and kind of um, speaking to the movement leadership and uh, understanding sort of how those different components work together. So it consists of a, a very closely interconnected network of, you know, as I mentioned, right-wing policy groups such as uh, the um, Family Research Council, the American Family Association, groups like that. Um, leadership networking groups like the Council for National Policy, um, uh, training organizations like the Leadership Institute, legal advocacy organizations, there's a whole kind of right-wing legal um, ecosphere uh, like the Federal Society, groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom or Liberty Council, very sophisticated data organizations, uh, media and messaging platforms, a kind of, I say far-right <laughs> propaganda sphere and a lot of pastors networks, uh, pastors networking organizations that basically mobilize conservative leaning and conservative congregations in election seasons that sort of, you know, get all of the congregants on the same page to turn them out to vote for the so-called correct, biblically correct candidates. So these groups are all working together for common political aims. And so the strength of the movement is really in this organizational infrastructure and coordination and you, it'll, sorry, go on. <laughs> no, no. Do you see this uh, like particularly now with with, with uh, Trump, you know, not directly in the picture the way he was, and with Biden's election, is 
the temperature on all this going down, or is it, or, or do you, is it being, is it amplifying? Are they even more worried now that, that Joe Biden's president? Or I mean, how do you, how do you see the current situation in terms of going into 2022 from, from us political animals out here who, who try to figure out uh, what's likely to happen and what we have to guard against? Well, this movement is not going away. I mean, it uh, has the strength that it does because it invested in the, there was, you know, substantial investment in the machinery of the movement over decades, a movement long preceded Donald Trump and will, will long outlast him. And they always act to rally their uh, voters in election cycles. Um, here's another key point. It's a movement that's really driven by fear and negative emotion. So uh, a big question is if they can motivate their base to fear Biden and the Democrats to the degree that they need to win elections, um, they will really be able to succeed. That is, you know, if they can uh, get this message out that Biden is some kind of crazy maniac and the Democrats were all out to rip up the foundations of the real America. If that message succeeds, then the rank and file will come out in support of whoever the Republicans put up. How, so, how, um, how much of this, though, is um, are a lot of us responsible for in, in the following way? I mean, if if left in their own silo to keep um, engaging in these, you know, in, in, in this fear, and we've stopped talking to them because they're crazy or whatever, you know, you, you know, or, or, or in our, you know, in the way we, you know, I'm talking about Joe Trippy here, you know, the way we think <laughs> about it. Um, I, I mean, is part of this the the polarization where we've pulled away and not engaged them, or is it just not? There's just no, as some people say, like, forget it. It's not worth talking to them. There's no, there's, there's no way to get, uh, there is no common ground with, with, with this group of people. Is that, I, I don't know, what's your thought on that? You know, I think that it's really helpful when we're, it's always worth talking to people, of course. And, you know, we have to remember that this is a leadership driven movement. It's really not driven by the rank and file. Um, regarding the rank and file, we're talking about a wide range of people with different interests and backgrounds and ideas. And I think the first thing to remember about the rank and file is that a substantial number of them do not support anything like a theocracy. And many of them would be very unhappy to learn um, all of the details of what their leaders are proposing. And I think a lot of this group votes identity and not just policy. So when they're voting you know, for the candidate who promises to end abortion, re reunite church and state, they're not really aiming for major fundamental changes in the way American government is organized. They're kind of making a statement about who they are and what they value in themselves. Their identity might be Christian nationalist only in a loose way. Uh, and they, of course, um, care about all the things that the rest of us care about, healthcare and education, infrastructure. I think it's, you know, if, if Biden and the Democrats can, you know, act on infrastructure and healthcare uh, and education, these other things that um, matter to all of us. It really takes away some of that fear narrative that, um, you know, takes some of the wind out of the sails of the fear narrative. But, um, you know, it's also important to remember that this movement is really a minority of the population. They only um, punch above their political weight uh, because of the strength of that movement infrastructure. I always pay attention to what George Barna is saying, Ralph Reed, you know, I go to their events and things and, you know, in advance of 2016, um, George Barna said, you know, 
he wrote a book called The Day Christians Changed America. Of course, his definition of what Christians is is very narrow. Um, but he said, you know, the most devoted religious rights supporters are only 10% of the population. But um, I think it was like 91% turned out to vote in 2016 and 93% turned out to vote for Trump. Um, most recently, I heard um, Johnny Moore, who's one of the major evangelicals for Trump guys, say, we're just 10% of the population, but we're 30% of the electorate. So if you look at, you know, they punch above their political weight because they're so disproportionately organized and networked and because of the machinery of that movement. So turning out the vote is really important. And of course, it's always worth having conversations and, um, you know, trying to bring people at the margins who, who do care about things like infrastructure and education. Well, uh, the other thing it seems to me is uh, they have, because of their organization uh, and structure, uh, an ability to, and I use the word infect, not in a, a pejorative, but they, they 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 can reach out to others with that fear, inject that fear into other people, and, and sort of grow that 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 fear out there, uh, well beyond the 10, 20, 30 percent that they may may actually uh, uh, be themselves, and, and so. In a lot of ways, some of the conversation, if, if we're having the conversation with those people, I mean, the, 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 the ones that are sort of outside, just outside their circle, but they're able to pull in, maybe we can, can, can pull them. And that's one of the things I think Biden was able to do at some level in the, in the election um, that the party writ large couldn't do. It was easy to demonize the whole party. It's like just a lot of ways where it was easier to demonize Hillary than it was to, to demonize uh uh, Biden, um, uh, in, in a way that got people to fear Hillary or or fear the party or fear fear Pelosi or any of the other uh, people they hold up uh, to uh, worry them Black Lives Matter, whatever. I mean, whatever it takes uh, to create that fear and grow it beyond their own their own universe. I mean, their own. Uh, uh, voter support. You're absolutely right about that. And I think a really important component is moderate um, and liberal voices of faith, you know, moderate and progressive voices of faith. Uh, one thing that uh, the uh, movement has tried to do is say, you know, it's us versus the apocalypse. Uh, you're either, I think uh, John Trump Jr. put it at the RNC, he said it's a choice between church work at sc or, and school or, you know, marauding Devout. in chaos, yeah. you know, it's like this incredibly binary choice, but it's really important to, um, you know, I think most American Christians reject the politics of division and conquest that this movement represents. Well, and also don't, I mean, I'm just sort of curious about this because, you know, Trump, uh, I, I can't remember uh, attending church during his presidency. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying he didn't, but the only recollection I, re I have is when he walked across, after tear gassing everybody, he walked across the square and held the Bible upside down um, in front of the, the church outside the White House. Um, and here you've got, I mean, Biden, who, who genuinely, um, uh, you know, it, it, a devout Christian, um, goes to, to church, uh, I mean, religiously, uh, and... And who ends every speech, uh, I think, in a way that that Trump never really. I mean, it, I mean, an earnest appeal to God bless the country and God bless our keep our, our our troops safe. I mean, there's a. It just seems to me like is he will they hear any of that or is the fear out there of whatever wherever Democrats or 
where we're going to try to, you know, that, that apocalypse that he represents or that they try to get us, get their followers to, to fear. Is that a constant struggle right now? Is there a chance that he can disarm people enough or that they'll, they'll see his genuineness and, and give him a chance? It's always about the margins, isn't it? So yeah, of course, it's going to work with, um, you know, many, I think, you know, again, most American Christians, most American Catholics um, uh, reject the politics of division and conquest. Um, you know, I think a, a, a lot of, uh, you know, interestingly, there's a kind of um, sort of political divide within American Catholicism as well. Uh, Ralph Reed has called Catholics a jump ball of American politics. It's sort of, you know, as diverse as the whole nation is politically, but um, obviously his, uh, you know, he's a cradle Catholic, he's uh, devout, has been his whole life. And, um, and that message, you know, of anchoring uh, his um, concern for uh, humanity, for, for, for other human beings in his Catholic faith resonates with many American Christians. And uh, it's really important to remind people <clears throat> that that's, that, is, that is religion as well. You know, the religious right likes to uh, claim that they alone have a, a lock on what, on what, what faith is. And yet uh, probably most Americans of faith uh, would not go along with, with that uh, particular agenda. The quote unquote autopsy that's going on. The one thing I, I really want to touch on before, uh, before we lose you is, is uh, the impact that the religious right has had on our court system. And uh, your recent uh, New Republic piece uh, really explored where we stand there. Uh, and one of the things that I can't remember, uh, maybe Alex, you can about what guests, but said that it, it sort of matches up here, so I'll get to it, it, is that the autopsy on 2020 was that they had to go beyond where they had the will to, to push the envelope and take over the it, it, authoritarianism uh, view of the world. And the other part of the, the the autopsy was to purge anybody who in 2020 had exhibited a reluctance to exceed and, and go over that line. Then, so then when I, I, I read the piece, it, it, there, it's totally different because you're talking about the court, but it seems to me that there's, that the Supreme Court you, you're looking at in a lot of ways is crossing over to that nationalism as well. Uh, can you, you talk about that for a bit? Sure. I, I think the big battleground is really the reframing of religious freedom as a, a right for people with sort of correct beliefs to discriminate against others of whom they disapprove and be a sort of bid for public money. But I think the main point of the religious freedom argument that as the as the religious right defines it is really to reinforce this Christian nationalist narrative the narrative that we, you know, so-called we, the true Christians, supposedly true Christians are a persecuted group and the salvation of the nation really depends on, on them, right? It's a grievance narrative. And I think it would be uh, frankly foolish to believe it could be placated by granting them the privileges that they want. They will never be satisfied because they will continue to see themselves as aggrieved and will support, frankly, any authoritarian candidate who addresses those grievances. Well, that's that's the part that I, I, I'm trying to get at here because your, your, your book really, uh, and the piece, I think, really tackled the idea of exercising raw power at, this, at the expense of the rule of, of law. And, and what I'm 
been trying to understand is how did the religious right get here? I mean, the, the, the exercise of raw power is more important and, and sort of a, a, a guy like Trump, you, you know, really pounding the table on the exercise of raw power over everything else. Mm -hmm. How does that, and I, I kind of, I get what you're, you're saying. I mean, this fear that, well, that's the way we keep to keep the privilege that we, we deserve, but, so, I, I, but where does that go? I mean, in other words, over time, uh, it's clear demographics and other things are, you know, we're starting to see uh, changes in so many states and, and what, what, as, as they don't grow in size, and I'm not saying they can't, but I'm just saying as they, as their percentage in the electorate shrinks and they, and they lose that sense of fear that the apocalypse is coming and we're losing power, does that just make it even more I mean, the, just the, the grab for raw power becomes then the, the most important thing to them. I'm just trying to get into your your thinking on, on no. something I don't yeah. think I'm articulating very well. But listeners no, know I, that <laughs> know that about me already. That's a Joe. There's, I mean, you've said so much um, uh, that I could riff on, and I'll start with this. I mean, yes, of course, as they, they, I think they've figured out that they can't win in a fair fight, and that's why they're all in on voter suppression. I mean. How many hundreds of bills and how many states? Because, you know, I think uh, Trump himself was caught in a hot mic saying, you know, if every American could vote, we'd never win, another, uh, Republicans would never win another election. And it echoes what Paul Weyrich said, you know, way back when, when he was, uh, he and a group of others were starting the sort of new right, which is the beginning of the modern, uh, you know, contemporary Christian nationalist movement, when he said, I don't want everyone, everybody to vote, our, our influence in elections goes up when the number of voters goes down or something like that. So you can even see him on video saying that. Um, so yeah, they're all in on voter suppression, but they're also all in. The one thing that this is really doing is producing a tremendous amount of irrationality in the movement. And it's, it's really sad. I mean, um, it used to be plausible that this was a cultural movement, you know, preoccupied with things like abortion, same-sex marriage and the like. It no longer is. I mean, the movement has sort of uh, embraced wholeheartedly uh, these incredible conspiracies that, um, you know, that um, have really uh, served to destroy in, in a way, uh, just show how they want to destroy our democracy. I mean, if you look at January 6th, and if you look at um, the um, Trump's, at this point, indisputable descent into outright fraud and conspiracy, that has really done remarkably little to shake um, uh, large segments of the base. I mean, let's put it this way. There's some evidence that the number of people who are devoted to Christian nationalist supporters are on the decline, as you mentioned, and as people like um, George Barna have noted uh, and Ralph Reed, but there is no evidence that people of all the characteristics of Christian nationalism or the leadership, I should say, are breaking from a kind of Trumpism. So even if Trump himself isn't the candidate in 2024, whoever is going to throw their, they're going to throw their support to um, whatever candidate most closely embodies the kinds of politics that he represents. You know. so, so we let me take that uh, to the logical couple of places here. Uh, you know, looking at 2022, for instance, Trump will not be on the ballot. And I've, you know, in both eight to 2018, well, at least let's go back to 2018. I mean, he, him, when he has been on the ballot 2016, 2020, we have seen a surge in 
in Trumpism voters, right? Uh, rural areas, you know, et cetera. Uh, and that's what what helped him defeat Hillary and, and came much closer than a lot of people would have, would have hoped uh, to, to chase Biden. But in 2018, those people didn't come out when he was not on the ballot. And in, in uh, 2017, in the Doug Jones race that Alex and I worked on in, in Alabama, they did not come out uh, in 2000. The Trump, the, that Trump surge didn't happen. And so the, the question is, with, in 2022, he won't be on the ballot. How do you see these voters react? I mean, do we see that same thing where he's not there? There's no nationalist candidate, you know, national figure, you know, leading the charge. I mean, he was there in 2018 doing rallies and things, but it didn't work. They didn't come out. They, they came out for his rallies, but they didn't come out for the rest of the Republicans mm -hmm. that way. So um, do you think now, I mean, that's what I'm saying with, with Democrats came out like crazy in 2018 because Trump was there. Do they come out now like crazy in 2022 because of Biden, that fear, or or is it sort of tied to Trump right now in terms of his personality? I, I, what do you do? You have any opinion about that? Yeah, I don't think it's tied to Trump. Look, I don't like making predictions, right? But um, the one key fact is that Christian nationalism, that machinery, is not going away. And I think anyone who hopes to win in these elections, whether it's uh, 2022 or 2024, will have to drink that batch of Kool-Aid. And I think every Republican candidate knows that very well, and that's why they're chugging that Kool-Aid as fast as they can. I mean, I think a big problem has to do with the fact that we have all this sort of gerrymandering, a lot of it race-based right. gerrymandering, um, which means that in a lot of um, uh, elections on the Republican side, they're not running against Democrats, they're running against fellow Republicans. And the way they get, uh, the way they win and get them, and they win by getting the machinery of the movement behind them is to run to the right of their, you know, of, of their uh, challengers, to not let anyone get to the right of them. So, you know, this one is, and, and, and so you end up, with these kind of extreme right candidates. And it's it's really unfortunate. I mean, I, I happen to think our country functions best when we have two rational functioning political parties that understand the virtues of, you know, of, of give and take of power and compromise and the like. But we have a really, you know, our, our unfortunately, one of our political parties, the Republican Party, has um, has gone off on the deep end. And I think part of it has to do with gerrymandering and the the fact that the way they, you know, the, the way they, they run to the right of their challengers. Right. And that sounds to me like, or at least I, because I mean, when I'm somebody who uh, also believes that, um, it, you know, two functioning uh, common sense, par you know, parties trying to reach some kind mm -hmm. of commonality uh, mm -hmm. is the best uh, way for the country. But even when you start talking about that um, in democratic circles now, that's the, the, the so appalled at where the Republican Party is that you just get a whole lot of, no, you can't talk to that. How can you even say that? Uh, which I think, again, just drives everybody further apart. And, um, uh, you, you know, and so it, it, when you look at 2024, you know, the logical thing to understand is there, whoever runs in 2024, if Trump isn't in it, is going to run hard to this group. Because as you say, the the, the candidate who can harness the endorsements and support of this group is probably, uh, you know, a lock for the nomination. 
Um, you're going to have a bunch of ambitious Republicans who want to be president, who who understand that they need to get the nomination before they have any chance. Uh, and so that doesn't bode well. I mean, in terms of they will be clearly energized uh, through 2022 and, and into 2024, uh, if you think about it that, that way. Yeah, you're right, Javi. They will only win if they have the blessings of this movement, their movement leaders, and they know it. And that's why they continue to turn sort of piety into spectacle, into spectacle and also continue to stoke the kind of grievance, uh, grievances that is the sort of um, flaming core of Republican politics today. Well, one of the things that uh, we have been uh, since January talking about, and, you know, and saying, hey, after January 6th, don't, oh, actually back then it was after the 21st, don't let up. Don't like just breathe a big sigh of relief and think, you know, Joe Biden's president. We're over, and we've got a majority in the in the Senate after uh, Georgia. Don't just uh, uh, you, you know give a sigh of relief and think we're out of this. Um, and so we've been, you know, by bringing on uh, different guests, trying to trying to sort of get reasons for people to to educate people about why 2022 and 2024. Um, are you know kind of in a lot of ways critical and and more important maybe than the 2020 election in terms of you know uh, 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 keeping our guard up and not and 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 working hard today not wait hey let's wait till 2020 you know January 2022 and then we'll start a campaign we've got to start uh, whether uh, talking to some of these folks. Um, uh, I think Biden's doing a great job on uh, one thing I think we have is the advantage with a Democratic president, House and Senate, um, something you spoke to. If if we're actually able to be effective and touch them on the kitchen table issues of of, of health care um, uh, and getting them economic health in the middle of this crisis and to, and effectively um, show that government isn't, you know, that, 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 that we're not, that it's not Armageddon, that, 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 that uh, uh, Democrats actually can get something done for you. Um, and I think Biden's doing a great job of that. We'll see if the Democratic Party can keep the discipline of not wanting more and pushing harder um, uh, than, than, you know, than he's willing to go and trying to pull this all together. But so far, I think, you know, it's now up to a lot of people out there, hopefully our listeners to, to realize uh, there are a lot of reasons to think this ain't over and we need to keep up the fight. Um, so Catherine, I really uh, appreciate uh, you being on and helping us uh, uh, get a, a better understanding of Christian nationalism and, and how it's impacting not just the past elections, but how it could impact 2022 and 2024. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to speak with you today. Thanks for listening to that trippy show. I really do urge you to get yourself a copy of uh, Catherine's book, The Power Worshippers, on Amazon or in bookstores now. And make sure you check her uh, workout, uh, her latest piece in the New Republic, or follow her at at Kath, at K-A-T-H, S Stewart, S-T-E-W-A-R-T, uh, on Twitter. So Joe, you mentioned Twitter. I, I, I think you went viral this week. You had a, a pretty touching story about uh, Fritz Mondale. Would, would love to hear that. 
Yeah, I I I, uh, I was hit pretty hard. Uh, I mean, look, he was 93 years old. He had an incredible life. He's a wonderful man. Uh, but he touched me in so many, um, on a personal level, in so many ways when I worked for him. Um, and I just felt I had to to try to tell the story of who that of who Walter Mondale was. And so, um, look, uh, I was uh, in my 20s. I was running the state of Iowa. Um, you know, the Iowa caucuses. I mean, he was the vice president of the United States. He could have anybody, he, his choice of organizers in the party uh, to choose to run Iowa. Um, I was really fortunate uh, for him to uh, to put me uh, in, in what was then his, the most important state he had to win it. Um, and on top of that, a Kennedy guy, because there were only uh, two or three Kennedy guys who or even hired in the Mondale campaign because of the bad blood between the Carter Mondale campaign and the Kennedy campaign in 1980. Um, and so, you know, he had always did the same thing when he flew into Iowa and flew out. As the trip ended, he'd load the, we'd load the plane up with the traveling staff and the, and the huge press corps that he was carrying on a big 727. And Fritz would come down the stairs of that plane, grab me, and we'd walk around the tarmac around the plane two or three times. Uh, and he'd always, you know, we'd talk about just about anything, but at the end of it, uh, he would always look me in the eye, tell me his future was in my hands. Um, and it was kind of like that no pressure kid, but don't blow it thing. Um, win Iowa. Uh, and then he'd go bounding up the stairs and on you know the next flight on to New Hampshire or where he was going, and you know it it it, it was, uh, but we talk about all kinds of other things walking around that plane. I mean he loved pinball, the guy played a mean pinball which people had probably no clue when you th think of Vice President Mondial, uh, but anyway we talk about all kinds of things and one day we were talking about my family and he he finally got around to ask me about you know what my dad did and. Etc. And you know, look, I, I I told him that my dad hadn't spoken to me in five years. That my dad wanted me to run his flower shop. Uh, thought that you know, going to college was like being irresponsible. Uh, and definitely, then when I quit college to go work for Kennedy, you know, that was like that was it. Bam. Uh, 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 I was going off to be a political hack uh, uh, in a you know miserably. Uh, corrupt profession or whatever he, he, you know, he was old school Italian, but um, uh, you know, and then of course in that conversation, I'm reminding Fritz that I, he, he dumped me. I mean, like he stopped talking to me because I went to work for Kennedy, quit college, but Mondale thought that was pretty funny and thought that maybe I should have listened to my dad at least about that part. Uh, but anyway, um, long story short, we end up uh, winning Iowa by 49 points uh, Gary Hart gets 19%, uh, I think, distant, you know, 30 points behind us. But, it, man, he he coming in second got in the media spotlight and he and, and enough coverage uh, and momentum to beat us in New Hampshire. And, you know, as I said in the tweet um, uh, scroll, uh, you know, the Hart rocket was was launched, launched. We started losing state after state. And they gave, the national campaign gave Fritz these boxing gloves um, uh, and dubbed him Fighting Fritz. And every rally from that point on, he would walk onto stage with these boxing, these gloves and thrust them in the air 
uh, and you know to to you know to the theme of fighting threats. Um, and the press, the, the the campaign put out the to the press that he was going to carry those damn gloves until uh, he 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 sort of stopped the the string of defeats that Gary Hart was handing him till he till he till he beat Gary, um, which got me to be the Pennsylvania state director in April. <laughs> so because. We're 14 points behind in Pennsylvania, and if we don't win Pennsylvania, there aren't going to be enough delegates left for Fritz to have a shot at the nomination. So in March, they send me up to Pennsylvania, uh, 14 points down. I said it in the, in the tweet scroll, if people think I had nightmares uh, uh, about losing Iowa, and I did. Man, there ain't nothing compared to the nightmares I had thinking about the pot, what would happen if we lost Pennsylvania. We win Pennsylvania. The networks call it. Uh, it's the biggest victory probably in my life. The only thing that came comes close to it was Doug Jones and the victory in 2017, uh, which was amazing. But this was even that more amazing. Um, and I get a call, and it's David Lillehog, the, the, at the time the the guy who traveled with with Fritz, and say calls me and says, Fritz wants you to come up to the suite before he goes downstairs to declare victory. So I get in the elevator, I go upstairs to the suite, I walk through the door and there's Fritz Mondale uh, sitting on the couch on the sofa, talking to this old Italian dude and telling him that his son uh, worked in an honorable profession uh, and that he, the vice president, depended on me. And you need to know that because uh, he's trying to make a difference and, and that's real important and it's my dad. Fritz Mondale had remembered that conversation from months earlier. I mean, eons ago in a presidential campaign. Um, somehow located my dad without asking me where he was uh, and, and got him to Philadelphia to be there on election night. Um, and when David Lillehog uh, handed, uh, you know, my dad was hugging me. We were reconciling and... And David Lillehog handed Fritz those gloves, those boxing gloves that he'd been carrying for months to carry him on stage downstairs. And Fritz turned um, and said, I don't need these anymore. Took out a felt tip pen and wrote to Rocky Trippy, uh, thanks, Fritz Mondale on one of them. Gave them to me, grabbed my father, dragged him down to the ballroom, made him go up on stage with him and stand right with him while he was giving that victory speech in Philadelphia uh, uh, winning the Pennsylvania primary. And then, you know, my dad passed away some years later and I, uh, I said, I tucked uh, one of those gloves to rest with him uh, gently uh, to be in there with him. And the other one um, remains with me is a, is a, a homage to, to Fritz. And I, I didn't want to do this because I can barely ever get through this story without breaking up. So thanks for that, Alex, <laughs> to update you on where we are in Texas. Uh, a new poll now has Democrat Jana Lynn Sanchez leading by four points in the Texas sixth special election. Now that's a one, that's an election that Operation 147 um, has been focused on because we want to turn uh, over as many of these people who or districts that where they supported 
not certifying the election and, and overthrowing the results. This is the first one to come up. Uh, and right now, a Democrat, uh, it's a jungle primary, but we're ahead. Uh, and uh, we're on the air. Uh, uh, 147, Operation 147 is on the air in this district. And we really feel strongly that we can pull it off. So check out our ad uh, and help us keep it on the air at Operation147.com. We'll be back next Friday at our usual time. As usual, if you have a race you want us to spotlight or questions, please submit it on iTunes and the reviews or email us at thattrippyshow at gmail.com. And if you like this episode, please share it with your friends. Uh, it really helps us grow. And the one thing I, I really do think this series of conversations that we had with, with uh, Stuart Stevens, uh, Nick O'Malley, James Fletcher, uh, and today's uh, show with Catherine are worth, if you missed any of them, go back um, and look for them uh, because I really think they start to starkly show how important um, putting all our oars in the water and paddling to some to, 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 to victory in 2022 is going to be. Thanks a lot, and we'll be back next Friday.